Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. A couple of years ago, Brookings Senior Fellow Emeritus Steve Hess contributed a regular series to the show called Steve Hess Stories, in which he talked about his life in political Washington and at Brookings over the years. Now he's author of the new book titled Bit Player, My Life with Presidents and Ideas, just out from the Brookings Institution Press. In it, Hess recounts how, as a 25-year-old recently discharged Army private in 1958, he found himself part of President Eisenhower's speechwriting team. Over the next two decades, he played bit roles aiding Nixon, Ford, Carter, and Reagan, followed by a 40-plus years career as a scholar here at Brookings examining the media and the presidency. In today's episode, Hess sits down with Brookings Press Director Bill Finan to talk about the book. Along the way, he shares his thoughts about today's media environment. Stay tuned also in this episode for What's Happening in Congress with Governance Studies fellow Molly Reynolds, who addresses the recent House Democratic Caucus choice of Nancy Pelosi to be Speaker of the House and what Pelosi's prospects for winning in a full vote to the House are come January. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter at Policy Podcasts to get the latest information about all of our shows. And also check out and subscribe to our new global trade podcast, Dollar and Cents, with Brookings Senior Fellow David Dollar. And now, on with the interview. Here's Bill Finan with Steve Hess. Thanks, Fred. Steve, good to see you. Thank you. Your new book is entitled Bit Player, My Life with Presidents and Ideas. Why the title Bit Player? <laughs> I figured you'd ask that. As my publisher, you weren't very happy about that title in the first place. <laughs> Somehow, it didn't look like it was going to sell books. But as a matter of fact, it turns out that I think people are intrigued by the title. And I don't know if they sell more books, but they certainly mm-hmm. notice. Bit Player, I think of in terms of the movies. You know, my favorite movie, Casablanca. Humphrey Bogart was a star, but bit players were people like uh, Dooley Wilson, who played uh, Till Time Goes By. So there are always actors around the edges. We're not there for long, but very often they can be important or move the story along. And I always thought of my career somewhat in those terms. And then bit player came to me because John McCain gave a wonderful speech in Philadelphia Mm -hmm. in which he called himself a bit player. And hey, if it's good enough for John McCain, it's sure enough is good for me. So I stuck with it because somehow it seemed right to fit my career. And the response to the title has been far more positive than my original initial <laughs> response, which I thought was I thought it was too self-deprecating. But writing speeches for Ike at twenty-five, speeches for Richard Nixon at twenty-nine on Nixon's White House staff, yeah. helped Jimmy Carter set up his White House, yeah. helped write Ronald Reagan's transition plan, hardly watching from the sidelines, but also acting. And that's what's in this book. A lot of you with presidents as part of the subtitle, and we'll get to the uh, life with ideas in a moment. Tell us how you became Dwight D. Eisenhower's speechwriter or one of them. Luck. Luck. Or certainly luck was a piece of it. In 1958, in August, I was getting off a troop ship. I had been in Europe for two years as a draftee, rising from private to private first class. I was 25. I was unemployed. And a month later, I was writing speeches for Dwight D. Eisenhower. Well, the fact was that my old mentor, everybody who gets to a certain stage at a university, has some professor who cares a lot about them and helps them along. In this case, it was Johns Hopkins University and Professor Malcolm Moose. 
And virtually just as I'm getting off the boat, unknown to me, Malcolm Moose is chosen as Eisenhower's speechwriter, and he asks me to join him. So years later, students ask me, uh, how do you get to be a president's speechwriter at 25? And my answer is, try to be very nice to your professors. <laughs> and you spent the entire two terms of Eisenhower's... Well, this was the end. This is 58. It came in right at the term of the midterm ah, election. Right, okay. It was a key moment in that administration in that Sherman Adams, the chief of staff, was being pushed aside with a scandal that had to do with a man named Bernard Goldfein. And when Moose joined the staff, he asked the retiring, if you will, the disposed chief of staff, Sherman Adams, if he could have an assistant. And Adams, being Adams, said no. But Moose, who was a professor at Johns Hopkins, also was the Republican chairman in the city of Baltimore. So he was a pretty good politician. So he did an end run around Sherman Adams. He went to the chairman of the Republican National Committee. His name was Mead Alcorn. And he said, hey, uh, Mead, I'm now going to be writing the speeches for the president for this very serious and important midterm election. Would you pay for an assistant? And Alcorn said, uh, oh, sure. So I went to see Alcorn, who I didn't know. And he said, how much do you want? Well, it certainly had never been asked of me before. Certainly when I joined the Army as a private, nobody said, how much do you want? <laughs> uh, I don't know why I said this. I said, $1,000 a month. He said, okay. And I said, oh, my, I must have asked for too little. So I said, well, there'll be other expenses. I didn't even know what that meant. And he said, oh, yeah, we'll get you an apartment as well. And now I'm doing pretty well mm-hmm. as a negotiator. I said, well, I'd like a four-month contract because carrying me to the end of the year. He said, okay. And what I didn't know, of course, was my $1,000 a month as a yearly contract in 2018 dollars would be $100,000. Holy. So this little 25-year-old who didn't know what he was asked for got himself a pretty fast start in Washington politics. Yeah, luck and fortune. (laughs) Luck and fortune, exactly. One of the virtues of this book, and there are a lot, I'm not just saying that as someone who worked with you on it too, is that people emerge as people in this book. And Eisenhower as president emerges in many dimensions. What are your impressions of Eisenhower as a person? Yeah, well, Eisenhower, of course, was at a distance in a sense, unlike Nixon, who we can talk about, because I was really two generations removed from him in terms of a generation being 30 years or so, his birth date and my birth date. So I could never claim that we were chums in any way. He was a man who had risen to be a five-star general, and he knew how to run a staff. And I was just a young man on the staff. What was remarkable, of course, was that I was a young man on the staff because at that time, I think there was only one other person who was in his 20s at that time. So my connections with him actually became firmer after he left the presidency. And what happened there is that today we think of former presidents as being given staff and cars and offices and all the perks that go with being president. At that time, there was nothing like that for our ex-presidents. So that when Dwight Eisenhower retired at noon on January 20th, 1961, he got in his old 
Chrysler Imperial, which I think he had had up on stilts or something for eight years, drove off to Gettysburg, his home, 80 miles away, with just one Secret Service car trailing him. When they reached Gettysburg, the Secret Service car turned around and went back to Washington. <laughs> and there he was, in a sense, alone. Uh, Gettysburg College gave him room for him to write his memoirs. And shortly after that, a member of the staff named Bryce Harlow, who at the end of the Eisenhower administration, he became the lobbyist for Procter and Gamble in Washington. He was really the go-to man for Republican things in Washington at that time. And he came to me and said, you know, if the Republican Party is to keep Eisenhower alive in a political sense for their purposes, somebody is going to have to answer the mail. Would you be interested? And I said, sure. Sounds okay to me. But of course, we had no idea what we were talking about. So we wrote a contract. It was piecework. Every letter that I would write, I think I got $3 for. And so the mail was all sent on trailway bus from Gettysburg to an office that I set up in Washington. I hired one of maybe Eisenhower's secretaries to really do the work. I simply wrote a book full of questions and answers, how Eisenhower might respond to all these things, and then stood back. What we didn't know, of course, was that Eisenhower was probably the most beloved man in the world, and the mail poured in, and every time we answered one, I got $3. So during this period, I felt, gee, I should be doing something else for Eisenhower, and Nixon as well, because Harlow had said, see if he could be helpful to Nixon, who had gone off to California and was a rainmaker in a big law firm. So I started two things. One was sort of a newsletter with an audience of two, Ike and Dick, things that I thought would interest them that were going on in Washington. The other was that wherever I would see something that related to somebody I knew that they knew, perhaps somebody was getting married, perhaps somebody was getting an honorary degree, and so forth, I would send a little note for them if they wished to send it to Gettysburg or to Los Angeles. So at that point, as Eisenhower and I became closer in this more elaborate connection, in which, in a sense, I was doing a lot of things for the non-existent Gettysburg office, and then, really, I stopped being Mr. Hess and became Steve. Mm -hmm. um, but it was an overwhelming and wonderful position to be 25 years old, political science major, if that made any difference, to every day walking through the White House. <laughs> if indeed the weather was, was nice, I might watch uh, Ike uh, hit the golf ball on the South Lawn and so forth, stop before the outside of the auditorium where they might have watched a film the night before, look over the cans of film to see what they were watching. Oh, you're watching another Western, I would say to myself. Mm -hmm. And I would see this because my boss, Malcolm Moose's office, was in the East Wing, and my office was in the executive office building now called the Eisenhower, which is across from the West Wing. So every day I would walk through the White House, and oh, wow, what a wonderful experience. And that comes through in the book, oh, that, it? Oh, that sense of wonderment and, and yeah, just I am yeah. here. One of my favorite anecdotes in the book is when you mentioned Fred Greenstein, Princeton News writing uh, oh. about Eisenhower, <laughs> The Hidden Hand Presidency, which was in a very important book because it reshaped our perceptions of Eisenhower as yes. this president who didn't do anything, yes, yes. Um, whereas, as you note in the book, uh, <laughs> he, he did. But uh, Greenstein's asking around about asking people for their perceptions about people. And is it Adams that he asked? No, um, yes. He had yeah. gone up. Fred 
Fred Greenside, a professor at Princeton, writing this first important book, Post-Administration on Eisenhower, had gone up to New England to interview Sherman Adams, this man who was described for six years as the most powerful person of the administration. And he would go down a list of all of the people in the cabinet, the secretary uh, of defense, the secretary of state, the attorney general, and Adams would give his opinion of this person. And he goes down and down through this long list. And finally, at the end, according to the story that Fred Greenstein told, he says, and how about Steve Hess? To which Adams says, now you're scraping the barrel. <laughs> and that's my wife's favorite story. <laughs> so another president who looms large in this book is Richard Nixon. You yeah. had a long association with him from his time as vice president, Eisenhower, to serving yeah. in the White House. And one of the things I took from reading Bit Player was a sense of Richard Nixon in three dimensions. I mean, time has turned him into a caricature in some ways, and you yeah. turn him into a human in all his dimensions. Oh, boy, was he a complicated man. And says complicated to me. So if that gets across, you see these bits of Richard Nixon that you probably hadn't thought about. Certainly, the strange part about it is when I was on the White House staff for Eisenhower, I did not know Richard Nixon, the vice president, because he was rarely there. Mm -hmm. It really wasn't until the Carter administration, when Fritz Mondale, the vice president, had an office in the White House, that was a blending. Otherwise, Nixon's office was in the Capitol, and he really came over for things like the national security meeting or the cabinet meeting. So I did not know him. And the first time I met him was actually in 1961 when he came to Washington. His law firm at that time didn't even have a Washington office. He actually was given a room in Bill Rogers' office, who had been the attorney general, and called me in to see what I might be helping him with. I was going to help him with a series of articles for the Saturday Evening Post and a column he was to write for the Los Angeles Times Syndicate. So it's clear that he liked that little newsletter mm-hmm. I had been sending him because he had spent virtually all of his life since he left the Navy in Washington. And this was the gossip of Washington. He went to California, and it was not the gossip of California. In fact, he once said to me later, he said, uh, Oh, if I have to play golf one more time with Randy Scott. You remember Randy Scott was an old cowboy movie star. I'll go out of my mind. So he liked that. But then about these letters that I was sending him that he might wish to sign, which actually Eisenhower loved and was signing, and I was getting comments all around Washington from people saying, I just got the nicest note from the general. Eisenhower, after he left the White House, uh, preferred to be called the general. general, Uh, But Nixon said to me, oh, stop sending me those letters. I don't really want to be remembered as somebody who remembers people's birthday. And I was sort of stunned by this. Remember, in 1952, this ticket had been put together because Eisenhower was the non-politician and Nixon was the politician. And yet here, when I was dealing with both of them, it was Eisenhower who was the politician and Nixon the unpolitician. Mm-hmm. And there's something in that, in their history, uh, particularly Eisenhower, who turned out to be incredibly successful as a politician by playing the role of the non-politician. Okay, so my experience at that point with Nixon starts to become deeper and more elaborate as I start to help him with his speeches and his articles, which becomes a very good experience for me. 
with Eisenhower, I was really part of a process. I wrote the speech typically, as I explained in the book, it went to Malcolm Moose. Malcolm Moose then sent it to the president. I was not working directly with Eisenhower. But with Nixon, with the two of us working together, it was a very comfortable collaboration, obviously, his speeches, but we worked them out together. Collaboration, that's interesting. It was. Yeah. It, was a, it was a good collaboration. Yeah. There was another part of the collaboration which is very interesting. Another bit where we don't think of Nixon in this sense. We never had a contract, remember. Nixon might write an article for the Saturday Post. Let's say, I'm not sure of this. Let's say they paid him $10,000, which would be $50,000 today. If I had written that article, they'd give me $1,000. But when Nixon got the check, very often he just split it in half. And I can remember saying to him, Dick, you're paying me too much. And he was embarrassed by this. And he said, sort of chuckled and said, well, I just have to give it to the IRS. And this is a person who very often was thought of as sort of cheap. Right. Yeah, there was that generosity of him that really jumped out at me in that yeah. story. You were there at the White House, and by the time Watergate began to happen, you were out of the White House and you were at Brookings. Yes. But that also was a reckoning for you, too, I know, with, with Nixon. Oh, it was indeed. I was out of the White House. I went to Brookings in January 1972. Watergate was June of that year. Obviously, I was very much in demand by the media, somebody who knew all the players and was now at the Brookings Institution. So I was often constantly in the green room on television or radio. I might say something that Kermit Gordon, who was the head of Brookings, a great guy, who had, I don't think he liked very much the idea that I was on radio so much. Brookings at that time had one person doing communications, and I don't think he was over overworked, but he didn't say anything to me. And suddenly, one, one person in communications. Yeah, one person. Okay. So I, I was becoming a soundbite. By the time the Urban Committee took up Watergate, which was how it was exposed big time to the world, all networks were covering it, ABC, NBC, CBS, but also PBS had set it up and put together Robin McNeil and Jim Lehrer. And in fact, as the networks moved away from it so that only one would cover it a day so that two would be free to make all their money, PBS stuck with it. And so we had huge audiences, and it consisted of the two, Neil and Lair, and then one person who was a sideband, a lawyer, who dealt with the legal issues and sat on one side of them, and the other was me doing the political issue, and I stayed with them forever. I'll explain what forever mm -hmm. means. What, yeah. yeah. What happened was, of course, this is before we know that there's a taping and we hear what's on the tapes. The big question is, what did Nixon know? I was certainly a supporter of Nixon and assumed that he did not know about the break-ins and so forth previous to the break-in. I even gave a speech at the Harvard Business School in which I outlined all of the reasons that a president of the United States might not know about something like this. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, it became known to the world when the world discovered that these were being taped and when the Supreme Court made it clear that the tapes would be available. And of course, I was dead wrong. Nixon knew this. But as I was sitting there watching these hearings with all of people who, many of whom I knew very well, passing through, and I heard what was going on, I became more and more troubled. In fact, I was having nightmares. And at one point, I announced literally on the air, I'm not coming back tomorrow. I can't take this. And the part in which I then talk about what I said on the air 
and how this is such a distortion of what we're all about as a country is in the book, The Bit Player. So what about this relationship with Nixon? Pat Moynihan, my dear friend, who I ultimately worked with on the Nixon staff, said, you have to have closure. You have to go up to New Jersey, where Nixon lived in retirement at first, and we'll have lunch. And I said to Pat, oh, well, okay. But before we actually got there, Nixon's memoir, called RN, came out, in which he really admitted nothing of the crime. He was sorry that it happened, but he admitted nothing of the crime. And then I started to worry, and this comes through in the book, about all these other people who I knew who went to prison. Mm-hmm. And these were not just any old people. These were people who were often and usually about not only the middle class, but the upper middle class. They had gone to fancy schools like the University of Southern California and Williams College and Brown and so forth. What was going on? And I read all of their memoirs and what they said was going on. And it was like a Nixon web that encaptured these people. And they went for all sorts of different reasons. Bob Haldeman, his chief of staff, who had been with him forever, clearly that was a very personal thing, that if Nixon said it, it was to be. But there were others like Charles Colson, who was a very ruthless man, who had clearly joined the Nixon staff in order to get in and in and up in life. So he was a different sort. There were others who were just young men, who were caught in this, and they did something because the chief of staff, the president of the United States, the commander-in-chief, told them to do it. And a particularly sad story that I end this little part on is a man named Eagle Bud Crow, mm-hmm. young lawyer who was given the assignment to have people break into Ellsworth's psychiatrist's office to find information. And he went to prison. And when he comes out of prison, he goes to San Clemente to see Nixon and to tell Nixon he did this, he cared about him. He did this because he was told to do it. It was the right to do. And Nixon turns to him and said, I did nothing wrong. Mm. Till the end. And Crow turns around and leaves. This is the sad story of it. You know, my wife and I are at the Arena Theater in Washington one night, intermission. We see Bill Sapphire and his wife, Helene. And uh, I said, you know, a funny thing happened today. RN sent me a book. And I just mentioned that Bill Sapphire was one of the, I'm the sorry, Nixon Bill speechwriters. Sapphire, yes, yeah. was a longstanding yeah, member yeah. of the staff who went on to become a New York Times columnist and win mm-hmm. a Pulitzer Prize. So I said to them, you know, I got a book from RN today. What does it mean? And Elaine Sapphire says, it means he's forgiven you. Mm. So all of these connections of who forgives and who doesn't forgive and how long you can have a grudge and how you hold it. But for me, I couldn't release myself from that. I never saw Richard Nixon again. I did not even go to his funeral. Mm -hmm. And instead, I did the commentary on C-SPAN. So this is a part of my life that I have trouble with that is difficult. I guess every book that tries to be honest about a person comes up against situations like this. A part of the book that's positive and where you have <laughs> nothing to resolve is your time with Brookings. And as you mentioned, you came to Brookings in 1972. Yes. Bit players subtitled My Life with Presidents and Ideas and Brookings is your life with ideas. Yes. But ideas rooted in reality. Yes. Why did you come to Brookings? Why did you want to come to Brookings? Oh, I like this story. Boy. So, oh, You know, if you started with this story, it's a professional memoir, not a personal one in that sense. And it starts when I get off the boat 
having been drafted, coming out of college, being drafted, going to the army, coming out strangely, being on the president's staff almost instantly. There I was, just a simple BA from Johns Hopkins, good school, but no farther than that, who had moved in this strange way in the political world so fast that I never quite caught up with myself. And what I always wanted to do was write books, Hmm. serious books. And in a sense, I was able to, largely because of writing all those letters for Eisenhower at $3 a letter, plus all of the money that Nixon gave me as a speechwriter, and I could stop being on this political track and write the books. And through the books, at least try to build an image of myself as a serious person, a person who otherwise might have gone on and gotten a PhD. So that's my story. At the same time, Brookings is having its story. Brookings, over 100 years now, but at that time in the New Deal and Fair Deal in the Roosevelt and Truman period, Brookings was actually of the right wing. And a man named Kermit Gordon, when he became president, turned it around Of the 20 people who were there in the old administration, I think only six remain. And Kermit Gordon, who had been a professor of economics at Williams but had come to Washington as a member of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Kennedy, then moved over to be the director of the budget. And then when Johnson succeeded Kennedy, Johnson actually asked Kermit Gordon to be secretary of the treasury. But he said, no, he wanted to be, as he was offered, president of Brookings. He came to Brookings probably about... 1967. In 1969, when Nixon became president, all of these people were escaping from the Mm Kennedy-Johnson administration, people like Art Oaken and Charlie Schultz and Alice Rivlin. There was Gordon to catch them and put them together. So Brookings at that time started to have a reputation not of the right of center, but of the left of center. Okay, then I come along and say, hey, I think I'd like to work with you guys. I should say this is a period where you don't submit a written proposal, where you don't have a meeting before your colleagues. It's a process of sort of circling. You circle the key Brookings people. They circle you until you agree that you want to be together. In fact, Kermit Gordon offered me two jobs. I could either be vice president of Brookings or be a senior fellow in what was then called governmental studies. Well, it wasn't difficult to make that decision. I didn't go there to be an administrator. Mm-hmm. I went there to write books. So I accepted that. And while it was never said, in retrospect, what had I thought was going to be unattractive to Brookings, and I was a Republican, was probably a great plus because they had now all these famous Democrats. It'd be nice to throw in To balance it out a little bit, yes. So there, yeah. there was that as well. I know during your career here at Brookings, and this is not a bit player part at all, you made important contributions to media studies, how the Washington Press Corps works, what it is, who it is. Mm. Those 17 books you wrote during the time you were here have made important contributions, especially the Newsworks series. Just a quick question. How do you think about the press today compared to the press that you have studied most of your lifetime here at Brookings? Well, is, is there I, an easy, I, any easy assessments like I, that? I would say that I'm not prepared to make a judgment about the personnel. I don't mm-hmm. re- see any reason why that would have basically changed. Clearly, the nature of the system has changed. The series of books that I wrote was really before the social media just barely, you had the introduction of first CNN and then Fox and then CNBC and so forth and so on. So that very much changed the nature of the press to a more adversarial press where if you 
you were a Republican, you know exactly what station to listen to. A Democrat had its station. I'm sad about that. But the books that I wrote had to do with, first of all, the press, then it became the media. But this was considered sort of the an additional branch of government, but we didn't know anything about it. So I set out to find what was what was the history. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't any in writing. There was one book, a PhD thesis uh, in 1936. But otherwise, the books I found were sort of memoirs by Washington reporters that were like presidents who have known me. So I wanted to set out to shape this, to find out who was part of it, and to move through. And so I did that over time as it related to the executive branch, how I went into the White House, the the State Department, the Defense Department, the Food and Drug Administration, the Def- uh, and so forth. And, and I had, I got permission to sit there with their press secretaries and find out how all of this was resurfaced uh, through the government, which hadn't been done before. Then I did the same thing with Congress and how the press covered Congress. And, and by and large, it was a sort of thing of counting every time a story was on the air from a congressman's district, where it came from, and that sort of thing. And then I even did foreign correspondence. I virtually went around the world asking people in China or Japan or the Middle East, uh, sitting there, how they were covering the news. So collectively, it was a mosaic that presented Congress. And by and large, I came away with a positive view. Mm -hmm. I was disturbed in a way that the type of news from the world that they covered was so much shoot 'em up bang bang stuff, so little uh, beyond the surface. And the same way, in a sense, with the political news, which the degree to which it was in political terms uh, running a race rather than uh, digging dig into the substance of a political campaign. But nevertheless, it fascinated me, and that was part of it. The other part that I had two parts, the other part were my presidency studies. Mm-hmm. And the presidency studies, I was not a theorist. These were books essentially on how the president could do better, how the presidency can do better. And what hit me so hard was that we finally got a president who didn't give a damn, who wasn't at all interested in how presidents worked out their problems, how presidents organized themselves. And I was confronted with the next problem at my age. What do I do then? So in a sense, what I did was I took a leave of absence from writing about the present rather than get in a daily conflict Mm -hmm. with what I saw going on. There were plenty of others to do that. They didn't need me. Mm -hmm. And then what should I do? I'm a writer. I'm sitting there in my Brookings office. I got to do something. And it was that for several reasons, from several points of view, people said, uh, why don't you do your memoir? Something I never wanted to do. Memoirs are for generals who fight big wars. Right. Why are they for little people? But there were others who said, hey, but there really are more little people. They may get something out of a book. And my wife, Beth, who was a social worker, she gave me a theory of reminiscence. And it showed, hey, this is good stuff to think about your past, to work it out. And it was. It was a wonderful year. And I think by writing Bit Player, I probably learned a fair amount about myself. I'm glad that you gave in, accepted that what you've seen, done, understood could be shaped into what Bit Player is. It's a necessary book to understand how politics works, and it's written with insight, clarity, and heart. Thank you, Steve, for writing it, and thanks for talking to us this afternoon. And thank you for publishing it, Bill. 
You can find BitPlayer, My Life with Presidents and Ideas, on our website, on Amazon, or wherever you like to buy books. And now, here's Molly Reynolds with her thoughts on the recent elections in the House Democratic Caucus of New Leadership and their choice of Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi to be the next Speaker of the House. Hi, this is Molly Reynolds, a fellow in governance studies here at the Brookings Institution. House Democrats met this week to select several party leaders for the next Congress, as well as to pick their nominee for Speaker of the House. House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi received 203 votes from within her party and remains the frontrunner to reclaim the Speaker's gavel, but her path hasn't been smooth so far. At its heart, Pelosi's challenge is a math problem, one created by the unique status of the process for selecting the Speaker. Unlike other congressional leadership positions, the Speaker is selected by a vote of the full House of Representatives rather than by only members of a given political party. To win, then, a candidate must get the support of a majority of the votes cast by members for a person by name on the House floor on the first day of the new Congress. This creates a tension. We see the Speaker of the House as a national party figure, especially when, as is the case for Democrats currently, the House is the only element of the national government under Democratic control. But the vote for that leader actually requires a supermajority of that party's House caucus. For much of the 19th century and nearly all of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century, with few exceptions, this selection mechanism wasn't a major obstacle for either Democrats or Republicans in picking their leaders. Both parties developed internal, intra-party processes for deciding on a nominee to advance to the full House, and then strict party loyalty was expected on the formal vote itself. Members of the majority party vote for their party's pick, and members of the minority party vote for theirs. Because there are more members of the majority than there are of the minority, the majority party nominee wins and goes on to use the powers of the Speaker's office to set the agenda and otherwise skew outcomes in the House in favor of the majority party. In recent years, however, factions within both parties have used the vote to elect the Speaker to register their discontent with party leaders. When a party is in the minority, this doesn't much matter. The minority party's candidate for Speaker will always lose, so votes against him or her, like the 18 Democrats who did not support Pelosi in 2011, are simply signaling devices. But when the majority party sees defections, like the nine members who voted against John Boehner in 2013 and the 24 who did in 2015, that can be more consequential, given the need to reach a numerical majority. What are the principal challenges facing Pelosi? They come largely from two different groups— and based on the vote in the caucus, comprise roughly 15% of the caucus. The first group are incumbent House members, whose frustration appears generally related to how Pelosi has functioned as the Democratic leader, centralizing power in the hands of a small group and making it more difficult for more junior members to garner influence. A second faction is comprised of newly elected House freshmen who, in an attempt to portray themselves as independent-minded, announced on the campaign trail that they would not support Pelosi for speaker. A third group who had threatened to oppose Pelosi, comprised of members of the Problem Solvers Caucus, appear to have been successful in using the speakership race to extract relatively minor rules changes that they argue would increase the influence of rank-and-file members in the legislative process. Can Pelosi bring enough of these members around? She can lose at most 17 votes on the floor of the House in January and still get elected, and so far, her approach to garnering sufficient support has focused on using carrots like new leadership positions and action on certain legislation, to specific members. 
She may also be counting on some members to support her on the floor if no other concrete challenger emerges. Indeed, one skeptical member, Stephen Lynch of Massachusetts, has suggested, for example, that he do that. More broadly, however, the need for maneuvering by Pelosi illustrates the challenges in managing a party caucus that is largely organized around factions of members with group-based interests. The mid-career incumbent members who feel frustrated by their lack of upward mobility through the party's ranks, for example, might welcome the implementation of term limits for committee chairs, an approach adopted by Republicans in the mid-90s that has allowed for more of its younger members to ascend to positions of power within the chamber. Chief among the opponents of term limits on the Democratic side, however, have been members of the Congressional Black and Congressional Hispanic caucuses, who represent important electoral constituencies within the party. Pelosi has proven successful at accumulating legislative and political victories within this environment in the past. We'll have to wait until January to see if more of the same happens in the new Congress. The Brookings Cafeteria podcast is the product of an amazing team of colleagues, including audio engineer and producer Gaston Reberedo, with assistance from Mark Holscher. The producers are Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna. Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, does the book interviews. And Jessica Pavone and Eric Abalahin provide design and web support. Our interns this semester are Sharon Bernier and Tim Madden. Finally, my thanks to Camila Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Intersections, hosted by Adriana Pita, 5 on 45, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu slash podcasts. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.